The grisly discovery of the remains of 215 indigenous children in Kamloops, BC has stunned the world. The remains were found using ground-penetrating radar. The RCMP has launched an investigation into the case. The horrors of the residential school system was laid bare in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Back in 2008, then Prime Minister Stephen Harper apologized to Canada's Aboriginal people for the pain and suffering endured in the residential schools. Last week, many Canadians were watching Pope Francis after the announcement of the discovery, but there was no apology issued from the Catholic Church. Now, the residential school system in Canada was primarily run by the Catholic Church from 1831 to 1997. And I'll be honest, I'm surprised at how few people actually know about the dark Canadian history. Hello and welcome to the Unpublished Cafe. I'm Ed Hand. We're coming to you from a remote location and practicing physical distancing to enhance safety. It is an unbelievable tragic story, one that is a stain on this country's history, yet so few know about it. I can say from my education experiences, very little was taught about it. The House of Commons unanimously voted to have the federal government withdraw from its legal battle with First Nations children. It is arguing against compensation for those children in a Canadian human rights tribunal. And while the vote was unanimous, it was non-binding and many of the Liberal cabinet, cabinet abstained from voting. Now, coming up on the Unpublished Cafe, we'll take a look at the impact of the discovery on Indigenous, Indigenous people across this country. As well, we hear from an expert on church apologies and why he feels the Catholic Church has no choice. But first, I'm pleased to be joined by Pam Palmiter, professor and the chair of Indigenous Governance at Ryerson University, as well as a Mi'kmaq citizen and member of the Eel River Bar First Nation. Pam, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. How does the Kamloops discovery reverberate through Canada's Indigenous community? Well, of course, it's very sad for everybody, but it's also very traumatizing for many of the residential school survivors who still exist today, as well as the family members whose children never made it out of those schools alive. So you've got that particular community of Kamloops uh, in the Shequepmik territory, who have living members who know that their children never came home. They've known for many, many years that there was these unmarked graves. Uh, they knew where the roughly where the children were. They have been asking for governments and churches to hand over documents to locate these children. And because of the inaction, they had to go ahead and do it themselves. But the thing that your listeners need to understand is this isn't an isolated incident. Like this mass grave is going to be replicated all across the country. Canada has literally lists of unmarked and uh, mass graves across the country that it has yet to address. Pam, that's kind of where I was going to go next. Is when I heard the, the, about the announcement in Kamloops, I uh, you know it was horror, but you know I have read a lot about the residential school system. So didn't surprise me. And you expect that there will be more graves found then. Oh, yes, for sure. I mean, the former head of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, former Justice Murray Sinclair, said there will be many more, both mass graves and individual unmarked graves at or near residential school sites, that many of these locations are known because the children, the survivors of those residential schools were often forced to bury their classmates who had passed away, or they could see the grave sites from the windows in their school. So imagine the horror of those children having to live through that. And so First Nations all across the country have been asking governments and churches, 
hand over all of your records. We need to identify our children because many families and communities want to bring them home. They don't want them buried at these residential school sites in unmarked graves. So we know there's going to be a large number because we have a great discrepancy between the numbers of children that are actually documented as having passed away in those schools and the number of children that are missing. And the estimates vary, but we know that it's going to be, you know, somewhere closer mm. to 12,000 instead of the 4,000 that we know uh, have been documented. In your opinion, was it genocide? Oh, it was genocide. I mean, there's no question about that. Even if there was a question previously, the National Inquiry into Murdered and Missing Indigenous Women and Girls said that Canada is guilty of historic and ongoing genocide for these intentional policies for um, allowing children to die when they knew better because their own lawyers were saying, listen, you allowing all of these children to die in these circumstances is bringing you dangerously close to manslaughter. And the response, the official response by government was, well, that doesn't justify a change in residential schools because our objective is, and I quote, the final solution of the Indian problem. So Canada had both the requisite intent and the actions to have committed genocide of thousands of children. Imagine, these children stood a greater chance of dying in these schools than in uh, an active soldier in World War II. So that says something. What would an admission of genocide mean to First Nations? Well, it, to some extent, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has already accepted the finding of genocide in the National Inquiry into Murder to Missing Indigenous Women and Girls. Um, what he hasn't done yet is now take full responsibility for ending the ongoing genocide and making full reparations for historic genocide. That's the really important part. Um, and, and keep in mind, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission also said on like page one of its report that in all of its dealings with Indigenous peoples, Canada was involved in physical genocide, biological genocide, cultural genocide. So there's been several significant national public inquiries that have confirmed this. Now, the federal government is uh, fighting uh, two cases uh, with the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal for uh, reparations for Indigenous uh, children. Why, why is the federal government continue to do this? Yeah, exactly. So on the one hand, you have the federal government and, you know, ministers and the prime minister saying, you know, our hearts and prayers go out to uh, the Shikwetmik people because of this mass grave. But at the same time, they're fighting the survivors of a different residential school, the St. Anne's Residential School, refusing to hand over thousands of documents that confirm all of their claims of abuse. And I mean, keep in mind, that residential school, St. Anne's, had an electric chair for children, if you can imagine. So there's a big disconnect between the political commentary or the rhetoric and their actions on the ground. And similarly, like you mentioned, uh, First Nations children in foster care has been considered by this government as a humanitarian crisis. One of the primary reasons there's so many kids in care is because of the intergenerational trauma of residential schools. They have been found guilty of racial discrimination, ordered to compensate, but they are fighting these kids in court, if you can imagine that. Um, and so Canada's actions don't match with their words. And it also goes to show how genocide can continue over a long period of time if reparations and remedial actions aren't taken seriously. 
Why do you think so few Canadians know the history of, of residential schools? Well, first of all, they weren't taught about that in school. I mean, I certainly wasn't taught. My own children weren't taught about it. And aside from the education system, you haven't seen historically a lot of coverage of the horrors of residential schools by mainstream media, which up until the advent of social media was your primary source for that kind of information and an absolute failure by federal and provincial and territorial governments to do any kind of public education outreach on their own. So you've got failures on all three counts, education, media, and governments to educate Canadians. However, in the last you know, 10, 20 years, there's now zero excuse these issues have been covered extensively in the media. There's been numerous public surveys that say the majority of Canadians do know about this. They do know about the horrors. They do know about the ongoing uh, injustices. But, you know, there's, again, this leap between knowing, knowledge and awareness and actually doing something about it. Because keep in mind, who's actually working in government? Who's working in these agencies? It's Canadians. So it's not like you can just look at government and say, do something. It's actually Canadians who also need to do something. So it, it, should it be taught in school? I, I know uh, an unsanitized version of it would be obviously, uh, could be very, very nasty in the classroom, but it, this is something that has to be taught, is it not? <laughs> Yes, of course. And and there are uh, many jurisdictions now who are teaching it. And of course, uh, the curriculum that's being developed or being taught now is being taught at an age appropriate level. What you tell a four year old child who's in early childhood education program is a little different than what you tell a 10 year old or a 16 year old. That being said, children are far smarter and far more capable and emotionally intelligent than people uh, think they are. For example, I have a Warrior Kids podcast where I teach kids all about these issues in kid-friendly ways. And it's important to understand that, yeah, kids are going to be upset by this. Uh, but keep in mind, they're in classrooms with Indigenous children who are in foster care or families who have suffered from residential schools. So if Indigenous peoples are old enough to suffer the ongoing trauma of it, then Canadian children are old enough to learn about it and what their classmates are dealing with on an ongoing basis. Pam, I want to thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for covering this. This is a really important issue. Pam Palmiter is a law professor and the chair of Indigenous Governance at Ryerson University and Mi'kmaq citizen and member of the Eel River Bar First Nation. Now, most were initially shocked by the discovery of the 215, but then it seemed to fade, whether it's a lack of knowledge or a lack of understanding, it's just not clear. Joanna Quinn is the director and graduate chair at the Center for Transitional Justice and Post-Conflict Reconstruction, as well associate professor at the Department of Political Science at Western University, and she joins us now. And Joanna, you wrote, many Canadians don't seem to care about the effects of the residential school system. Do they care? It's a good question. My sense is uh, Canadians are decent. People living in Canada want to care, but they don't know enough to be able to care in the way that they need to. And you, you need that knowledge to care, do you not? My, my research shows that if you don't have the knowledge that explains to you not just what happened, but why it matters, caring is much more difficult. And my sense is that Canadians know a little bit, 
but not enough to really dig into the question and make change. And that change is badly needed. You say this is the tip of the iceberg, but it can't be seen. Why can't it be seen? I think it could be seen, but we need to open our eyes. So as a settler, non-Indigenous person who grew up in Canada, lives in Canada, makes my home in Canada, I think the signs are all around us. But for many of us, particularly people who were born before the Truth and Reconciliation Commission happened, we weren't taught these things in school. Indigenous people lived in communities that were far away from where we lived, or we perceived them to be far away from where we lived. And even where they were close, communities didn't mix very much. And so Canadians were able to remain blissfully unaware of what had taken place in Indigenous communities. And here I'm talking about not just residential schools, but all of the other mm, structures and systems that are in place that affect Indigenous people living in Canada differently than the rest of us living in Canada. Are you talking about the Indian Act? I'm talking about the Indian Act. The Indian Act is um, a, a piece of legislation that's been in uh, effect for more than 100 years. It affects every aspect of the lives of Indigenous people. But I don't think Canadians understand that the uh, water problems, for example, on Indigenous reserves are related to missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, are related to questions of land, are related to the residential schools. It's part of a bigger picture. And I think our lack of knowledge lets us see only one or maybe two aspects at once, but doesn't let us connect those dots. What happens if a country with, with a dark moment in history like this doesn't acknowledge it? You've asked the big question, and we can look around the world and see what happens when we fail to acknowledge our past. Uh, when we stop and think about these kinds of things but do nothing about them, we perpetuate human rights violations, we perpetuate differential treatment of people in society, which leads to inequality, which leads to behavior uh, in populations against certain groups in society. Now, we could see that turning into civil war, we could see that turning into um, authoritarianism in other places in the world. Do I think that's likely to happen in Canada? No. But if we don't address the differential uh, treatment against Indigenous people in Canada, we are keeping that group in our community in a different compartment without equal access, without equal rights and without equal treatment that the rest of the people living in Canada, like me, enjoy. Why do you think we have such a difficult time coming to grips with this knowledge? You know, Canadians are nice. We are nice people. We're wonderful people. We're generous. We're kind. And this story really doesn't fit with our image of ourselves. Mm -hmm. So if you ask people internationally, what are Canadians? Nice, kind, generous, all those things. When we think about this, it's jarring. We have difficulty imagining that these kinds of things could have taken place. As, as a middle-aged white friend of mine said to me a few years ago, Joanna, I don't think so. If this stuff had happened, I would know. But it did happen, and we didn't know. Exactly. Now, how do Canadians embrace this knowledge of what happened and then empower change? How do they do that? So my research has shown that we need to, to understand information, data, and facts. So the uncovering of a minimum of 215 bodies in grave sites in Kamloops is connected to 
uh, residential schools across the country. And we know the Truth Commission report told us, um, Justice Murray Sinclair, who was the head of that commission and then a senator, uh, has told us that those numbers could be close to 15,000. So we need to actively pay attention. We need to actively learn about what's happened. But we also need to sort of widen our gaze so that we uh, give ourselves, equip ourselves with the knowledge to understand how those things are connected. Once we do that, then when uh, proposals are made to government, to in social uh, civil society, for things like truth and reconciliation commissions, for things like changing legislation to build in equality and access, Canadians and people living in Canada will hopefully not be so reluctant to engage in those kinds of processes. So that knowledge should give us the foundation on which we can then uh, be active citizens, actively working toward the change our country needs. Joanna, I want to thank you for joining us. It's been nice to talk to you. Thanks very much. Joanna Quinn is Director and Graduate Chair at the Center for Transitional Justice and Post-Conflict Reconstruction, as well as Associate Professor in the Department of Political Science at Western University. Now, following the discovery in Kamloops and the connection to the residential school system by the Catholic Church, many were hopeful of an apology from Pope Francis, but it did not come. Jeremy Bergen is Associate Professor of Religious Studies and Theological Studies, as well as the Director of Theological Studies at the University of Waterloo. And, and Jeremy, thank you for joining us. What does the church have to take into account to make an apology? Well, I think uh, one of the things the church has to take into account is the fact that it's speaking to a public audience. Uh, and it has many audiences, certainly survivors and their families, uh, Canadians as a whole, um, uh, Catholic uh, individuals. And I think uh, because of that public character, uh, it's important for the church to uh, address some of the expectations that this public has. Uh, and I think one of the really key expectations that the public has is that the church take responsibility uh, as an institution for a policy that it was complicit in, that it, it participated in, um, and uh, you know, in, in its running of, of these residential schools. So I think that public piece is one of the first things that I would say. Now, you, you say the barrier is theological. What does, what does that mean? Well, I think there are probably several barriers uh, and I think issues of liability uh, mm -hmm. are, are certainly probably in the mix as well. But I think one of the things that the public may not appreciate is the fact that there is an, an aspect of traditional Catholic theology that understands that the church as an institution is, uh, not, a, is not a body that can do wrong. So individuals may do wrong, may commit sins, but not the, the church as a body. And so for this reason, if you look at many of the Catholic uh, statements that have been made by popes and bishops, you know, in the last number of decades on a range of issues, uh, most of them will, will talk about forgiveness for things that individuals did. And I think this is certainly an important piece of the puzzle. Uh, there were individuals that did wrong, and, and absolutely that should be acknowledged. But I think there is also a sense, a perception that the church itself did something wrong. And unless that's acknowledged, I think people will wonder, well, is the church really, does the church really get it? Does it understand what it might need to do in order to demonstrate 
a changed attitude and a, and a renewed relationship with Indigenous people. Well, we, we, we've seen apologies in the past. I, I don't understand why this one would be much different. Well, so I think, um, I think there's an interesting dynamic where sometimes uh, statements that seem like apologies uh, are reported as apologies, but on closer inspection might not actually be that. So there's been a lot of reference to Pope Benedict, a statement that Pope Benedict made in private with uh, the assembly of the, the chief of the Assembly of First Nations, Phil Fontaine and others um, about 10 years ago. Uh, but in that statement, it, he expressed regret for something that happened. He was sorry that something happened, but didn't say that the church was responsible, right? And I right. can be sorry that you have broken your leg, but that doesn't mean I was responsible for it. And so I think that's, there, there can be sometimes a, a mismatch between what is said and what is perceived. Uh, you described uh, Pope Francis's uh, statement last week as deeply inadequate. What should it, what should it have contained? Well, I think it should, uh, and I, I can appreciate the challenge that Pope Francis has, you know, as the leader of a global body to really understand the local dynamics. Um, I, I think it needed to say that the church uh, did something wrong. Uh, I think, you know, that with the residential schools, I think there is both the, the, the very policy itself, as well as the abuse that happened within those schools. I think both of those need to be acknowledged as things the church did and failed to address. Um, and I think, I think really making a statement and, and putting it out there and recognizing that, um, uh, you know, these, these public statements are really beyond the church's control. I think that's, that's a very important thing. I, I think um, it's clear that the Pope is not, or the, the, the Catholic, uh, those who are speaking for the Catholic Church are not communicating the, the seriousness, are not maybe listening to the voices that are calling for an apology, um, and that they need to do better. Uh, should the Church be releasing its records on the, the residential school system? I, I mean, I think uh, I, I think truth is a very important mm. um, precondition for reconciliation. So uh, I, I don't have particular expertise on on some yeah. of those sort of detailed things, but I, I think in general, uh, the church needs to work with others to understand the past in in its particularity. But I think what the thing that an apology does is it sets a tone from the top, and many other things can follow. Different, there were different experiences at different schools, and that kind of detail, you know, can come out. But but an apology can set the tone for the work that might follow. Do you expect Catholics to to start pressuring the church for an apology? You know, I've I've heard uh, many Catholics already doing so, and I think mm -hmm. the, the the dynamic I described of this idea that the church itself is by definition sinless. That is by no means uh, a unanimous opinion. Even among Catholics, even among Catholic theologians, there is a dynamic argument um, that is, I think, really rooted in the Second Vatican Council that understands that the church is a pilgrim, you know, is, 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 you know, is, is a traveler in the messiness of history, and of course participates, uh, you know, in you know, in the sin of the world. And that's not incompatible with also saying, and the church is also a holy body with a, with a particular, um, 
mandate. And so that those things are not necessarily incompatible. That's already an argument that Catholic theologians are making. Jeremy, I want to thank you for joining us. I really appreciate your interest, and it's good to be part of this discussion. Jeremy Bergen is Associate Professor of Religious Studies and Theological Studies, as well as the Director of Theological Studies at the University of Waterloo. In my opinion, the story of residential schools in Canada is horrific, and it's something that needs to be taught in schools across the country. Just because it's uncomfortable, it doesn't need to be ignored or sanitized. I want to thank our guest today, Pam Palmiter, law professor and a chair of Indigenous Governance at Ryerson University, as well as Micmah Citizen and member of the Eel River Bar First Nation. Joanna Quinn is director and graduate chair at the Center for Transitional Justice and Post-Conflict Reconstruction, as well as associate professor at the Department of Political Science at Western University. And Jeremy Bergen, associate professor of religious studies at the University of Waterloo. And I want to thank you for watching The Unpublished Cafe. Stay safe. I'm Ed Hand.